chapter 18 tonight. I do want to take some time to look into God's Word with you. I wasn't exactly sure how long Audrey was going to preach tonight. So I have a long version and a short version of this. And um, I'll share the short version with you. How's that? Um, Acts chapter 18. I was looking at this earlier in the week and I think in Acts 18, we have a record of God helping His servant overcome discouragement. Have you ever been discouraged? Have you ever been troubled? Have you ever been fearful? Here's a divine record of how God helped His servant overcome that discouragement, and it's recorded for us. So let me read this account with you, and we'll go through it tonight and draw some principles from here. Acts 18, notice verse 1. After this, Paul left Athens and went to Corinth. And he found a Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontus, recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla, because Claudius had commanded all the Jews to leave Rome. And he went to see them, and because he was of the same trade, he stayed with them and worked, for they were tent makers by trade. And he reasoned in the synagogue every Sabbath and tried to persuade Jews and Greeks. When Silas and Timothy arrived from Macedonia, Paul was occupied with the word testifying to the Jews that Christ was Jesus, that Christ was Jesus. And when they opposed and reviled him, he shook out his garments and said to them, your blood be on your own heads. I'm innocent. From now on, I will go to the Gentiles. He left there, and he went to the house of a man named Titius Justus, a worshiper of God. His house was next door to the synagogue. Crispus, the ruler of the synagogue, believed in the Lord together with his entire household. And many of the Corinthians, hearing Paul, believed and were baptized. And the Lord said to Paul one night in a vision, Do not be afraid, but go on speaking and do not be silent, for I am with you. And no one will attack you to harm you, for I have many in this city who are my people. And he stayed a year and six months teaching the word of God among them. But when Gallio was proconsul of Achaia, the Jews made a united attack on Paul and brought him before the tribunal, saying, This man is persuading people to worship God contrary to the law. But when Paul was about to open his mouth, Gallio said to the Jews, if it were a matter of wrongdoing or vicious crime, O Jews, I would have reason to accept your complaint. But since it's a matter of question about words and names and your own law, see to it yourselves. I refuse to be a judge of these things. And he drove them from the tribunal. And so they all seized Sosthenes, the ruler of the synagogue, and beat him in front of the tribunal. But Gallio paid no attention to any of this. You say, where is the discouragement in this passage? Look at verse 9. The Lord tells Paul one night in a vision, don't be afraid. Go on speaking. Don't keep silent. I'm with you. No one's going to harm you. I have many in this city. What was going on in the heart of the Apostle Paul that God would have to say that to him? What is the Lord addressing in him? 
He's fearful. He's discouraged. Do you find it hard to believe that the Apostle Paul was discouraged? That he actually wrestled with fear? Gripped by anxiety? The great preacher Spurgeon said this about this passage. It is clear from this, dear friends, that even he who was not a whit behind the chief of the apostles sometimes needed special comfort. It is possible that even the bravest of the brave may be afraid. Sinking of heart assailed even Samson, while yet a thousand lay slay in heaps around him. Moses was cast down in the desert, and David was fearful on the throne. Even iron will melt. How much more a heart of flesh. seems clear that the Apostle Paul was certainly discouraged at this time in ministry. Why was that the case? Let's just notice a few things about his background. We're going to learn about strengthening the Lord's servant. How did God do this for the Apostle? We note from verse 1 that Paul had recently come to Corinth, the city of Corinth. What do you know about Corinth? Could you point to it on a map? Well, here's a map for you. There it is right there. It was a very strategic location. You'll notice just a little strip of land that joins the Ionian Sea and the Aegean Sea. You can go all the way around the tip of Greece, but oftentimes what boats would do is they would come in that bay area there, and they would actually cargo across the four-mile little stretch where Corinth existed in order to avoid taking the long trek around into the Aegean. And so Corinth, because of that, it was a, a very popular city. It was strategic. These are the things we learn about Corinth. This is a, an artist's rendering of what they imagined the city might have looked like. It was a beautiful place, but we know four things about Corinth. It was strategic because of its location. It sat on the north-south trade route. That's the only way you get to the southern tip of Greece is through that little stretch of land where Corinth existed. It's the only way to get between those two seas by shortcut was through there. So it was very strategic. It was cosmopolitan, a city like that with so many people passing through and so much merchandise going through there. You can imagine the kind of city it was. Think of New York City. This is the kind of city it was. It was a proud city. It was a, a Roman colony. They were very proud of that. They were Romans through and through. And it shows up in their architecture and much of their culture. But we also know it was a very immoral city. Uh, to Corinthianize uh, was a term that was coined to be immoral. Uh, to commit adultery or immorality, they would say, you are Corinthianizing. And the very name of the city was lock and step with the idea of sexual immorality. And so the Apostle Paul had recently come to this city. This was the setting for his ministry. However, Paul was discouraged. In fact, look at the book of 1 Corinthians. In looking back on his coming to Corinth, Paul records this in 1 Corinthians chapter 2. 
and verse 1. Paul's not in Corinth, obviously, when he's writing this letter, but he's thinking back to when he first arrived there, as was recorded for us in Acts 18. He says in verse 1, And I, when I came to you, brothers, when I came to Corinth, I did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom. For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. And I was with you in what? In weakness and in fear and in much trembling. Paul says, when I came to you, I was fearful, I was trembling, I was weak. Why? Well, go back to Acts 18. The chapter begins, after this, Paul left Athens and went to Corinth. After what? Well, Paul was previously in ministry with Silas and Timothy. They were his co-workers. Look back at chapter 17 and look at verse 15. Those who conducted Paul brought him as far as Athens, and after receiving a command for Silas and Timothy to come to him as soon as possible, they departed. Verse 16, now while Paul was waiting for them at Athens, his spirit was provoked. So Paul is alone at Athens. He sent for Silas and Timothy to come to him. The people that conducted him to Athens have left him. He's all alone, and he decides to make the trek over to Corinth from Athens. So Acts 18, verse 1, when he comes to Corinth, this is Paul's condition. He's alone. He's by himself. In verse 5, we read that Silas and Timothy eventually arrive from Macedonia, but initially he's there by himself. And so here's a believer in this cosmopolitan city, immorality on every corner, and he's alone. The other thing that I think we can assume from the text is this, verse 2, he finds Aquila and Priscilla in verse 3, because he was of the same trade, he stayed with them and worked for they were tent makers by trade. This is actually the first time you read now of Paul engaging in work. He may have previously in other cities, but it's like he wasn't in those other cities long enough really to do that. This is the first time you read that he takes up tent making. He begins to work this leather trade. Why? Why do you think that is? Why do you go to work? Because you're broke. I tend to think the Apostle Paul was running short on money. Other churches had supported him. We'll look at that some, but I think now he's looking and saying, okay, this isn't going to last. I need to try to support myself. And that probably affected his, his outlook on things. But this more than any, why was he discouraged? Look at verse 5. When Silas and Timothy arrived from Macedonia, Paul was occupied with the word, testifying to the Jews that the Christ was Jesus and when they what? Opposed and what? Reviled him. Now just try to imagine, what did that look like? These are Jewish people. They hear, here is a Jewish scholar, the Paul, Saul of Tarsus. 
And they come and they oppose everything he's saying. Whatever he says, they contradict and they revile him. That is like with fervor. And there, you can imagine shouting at him, shouting over him, trying to silence him at every point. Paul is opposed. And certainly this affects his spirit. Well, how did God deal with him at this point, in this place, under these circumstances, at this time? How did he work to encourage his discouraged servant? I want us to note three things about how God encouraged and strengthened his servant. First thing I want you to note is that God strengthened his servant through Christian fellowship. Verse 2, we're told that Paul finds a Jew named Aquila and his wife, Priscilla. How many of you have heard of them before? Okay, you know why? Because their names are repeated often in your New Testament. This is the first meeting of these people. And they have a friendship that grows out of this meeting, and their friendship really started because of a similarity. They were both what? Tent makers, really leather workers, I think, would be a better idea. They had that in common, and so they went back to that trade, and out of that blossoms this, this friendship that lasts, we don't know how long, but, but keeps coming up in your New Testament. They had similar backgrounds at this point. Paul had come from Athens. Why? Because he'd been chased out of Berea. The Jews were on his trail trying to shout him down and, and oppose him, and so they kind of follow him in his tracks, and he's almost been, as it were, chased uh, into this city of Corinth. Aquila and Priscilla the same. They were in Rome, according to verse 2, but they left Rome because Claudius, the emperor, commanded the Jews to leave Rome. Why did he do that? Well, history tells us that there was a disturbance in the city of Rome over one named Crestus. And most scholars think it actually refers to Christ and that the gospel had made its way to Rome and it started to grow and people were talking a lot about Jesus Christ. And Claudius didn't like it. And he said, these Jews have done this. We're going to get rid of all of them. I don't want them anymore in my city. And so Aquila and Priscilla are chased out of their home and uprooted and they find themselves landing in Corinth. And don't you just find it very interesting how all of that taking place, Paul chased out of Berea, Aquila and Priscilla chased out of Rome, they must have been scratching their head thinking, why is all of this happening? How can any of this be good? And God used all of those things to bring those people together to flourish in a Christian relationship that would be mutually edifying and would result in years of ministry together. It was a business partnership that provided so much more. God directed them there. And so what does God do to encourage his weak servant, strengthen his servant? He provides fellowship, Christian fellowship. Now, I oftentimes think of people that come into the doors of our church 
new people. We have new faces nearly every Sunday. And we often pray on Wednesday evenings, we pray for people in our area, one who do not know the Lord, that God would lead us to them and lead them to us. We also pray for people who do know the Lord but just aren't connected with the church. And what they need is fellowship and encouragement. And so people come walking in our doors and oftentimes when I meet them in the lobby afterwards and I speak to them, they share their story with me that maybe they know the Lord but they haven't been in church and they've been looking for something and I think God is answering this prayer and what they need is your fellowship. They need you to move out of your comfort zone and engage with them and just take an interest in them and try to get to know them. And maybe they're carrying very heavy burdens and they need your strength and your encouragement and God has brought them to our front door. And instead of sometimes maybe looking at them with suspicion, oh, these are the kind of people we really need to be involved with, I need to be looking at these opportunities that God has given and brought them to us because they need strengthened. They're discouraged and they have heavy hearts and they need the people of God. Just like we all do. And this is how God strengthens his people with Christian fellowship. This Christian fellowship grew into ministry together. I don't have the time to take you there, but later in chapter 18, we know they traveled with Paul for a time. In 1 Corinthians 16, we're told about the hospitality of this couple. In Romans 16, they're back in Rome, and Paul calls them fellow workers with him. And this is God's providence. He brought these people together, encouraged Paul by that mutual fellowship, and it sparked ministry together for many years. So who has God put in your life or brought into this place that needs encouragement and you can be that Christian friend and seek them out. Certainly, there are people like that every Sunday in this place. God encourages his saints through the fellowship of relationship. That's one way that he encourages us. The other way he does it is through the fellowship of finance. Remember I said Paul was broke at this time? That's probably why he, why he went to work. Well, remember we read this in verse 5, that Silas and Timothy arrived from Macedonia. And what did they arrive with from Macedonia? Again, I don't have time to take us there, but in 1 Thessalonians 3, we read that when, when these men came and met Paul in Corinth, they gave a report and they said, Paul, we've been in Thessalonica, which was in Macedonia. Those people are doing great. There was persecution there, but they are growing under the persecution. The church is established. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 3, Paul relays this report back to the Thessalonians, and he says, my heart was so encouraged to hear this from these men about how well you're doing. The other thing that Paul got from these men, according to 2 Corinthians 11 and Philippians chapter 4, is that the church at Philippi had taken an offering. And they did so in order to help the Apostle Paul in his itinerant ministry. 
And they brought that offering to Paul when they arrived from Macedonia, where Philippi is. And so Paul was further encouraged by this because God's people had met a physical need in his life. This, again, is a fellowship. We have Christ in common, and it's someone looking to help meet the need of another, either relationally or financially. Now, have you ever been encouraged that way? Maybe you have been faced with a tremendous financial need. You've been in hard straits. And maybe anonymously or maybe personally, but very humbly, someone has come to you and said, I know you have a need. Let me help you. And they've helped in a real, concrete, financial way that has ministered to you and relieved your burden and been a blessing. Who do you think put that on the heart of that person to do that? Who do you think put it in the heart of the Philippian believers to take up an offering and give to the Apostle Paul? God does that. And God strengthens his people and he strengthens us by using other people in the body to meet those needs. So don't ever turn a deaf ear to that prompting of God. Somebody needs to be strengthened. God encourages his people not only through Christian fellowship, but God also strengthens and encourages his people through divine revelation. Look at verse 6. These Jews in Corinth opposed and reviled him, and Paul shakes out his garment and says to them, Your blood be on your own heads. I'm innocent. From now on, I will go to the Gentiles. And he's actually quoting from Ezekiel 33. He performs this prophetic kind of action. He shakes out his garment saying, I'm shaking the dust of this town off of me. I'm no longer responsible here. I'm now going to the Gentiles. He proclaims his plan. He says, I'm tired of going into these synagogues, reasoning with these Jewish people, only to end up being reviled and rejected. There's much more fruitful ministry among Gentiles. And this is a real turning point for Paul. He says the God-fearing Gentiles are receiving the gospel. And so look at verse 7. He left there. He went to the house of a man named Titius Justus, a worshiper of God. Here's a God-fearing Gentile. His house was right next door to the synagogue. But what happens? Crispus, this ruler of the synagogue, who uh, believed in the Lord together with his entire household. Now, the, the ruler of the synagogue actually comes to Christ. And many of the Corinthians hearing Paul believed and were baptized. Okay? You say, well, that sounds like really good news. You've got a God-fearing Gentile that receives the Lord, justice. You've got Crispus, this ruler of the synagogue. It seems like he had a change of heart. And Paul, why aren't you encouraged by this? Well... Whenever the gospel made inroads in a city, especially among high-ranking officials in the city, what was the pattern? What was the pattern? Paul goes to a city, he preaches the gospel, people respond, they start coming to faith, all of a sudden it draws attention, even some higher officials, and now comes persecution, because people don't like that. And now the next thing to follow, Paul has seen the pattern in his ministry, is he's going to be arrested, he's going to be tried, maybe stoned and left for dead outside of the city. 
This is why Paul's fearful. He's seen this play before. He knows how it ends. Yes, the gospel's making advances, but I think he's afraid. He's afraid of what comes next. Wouldn't you be? In fact, we often do the same thing as Paul. Paul's thinking, is it going to be like Lystra? Is it going to be like Thessalonica? What will be the beating like this time? How long will I be in the rat-infested prison? And he's becoming discouraged. And we do the same thing, right? What happens if something happens to my children? What happens if I don't have enough to live on? What happens if I lose this relationship? What happens if things don't turn out like I planned? And we become discouraged and disheartened. And so how does God address such things? Look at verse 9. And the Lord said to Paul one night in a vision, don't be afraid. I am so glad the Lord said that. He acknowledges fear in his people. We're all afraid at one point or another in our life. And the first thing God does with his discouraged servant is he says, I know you're afraid, but don't fear. He addresses the emotion. It's interesting. Here's Paul, the guy who sings in prison, and he's afraid. And then God commands an action. The end of verse 9, but go on speaking and don't be silent. And then he focuses his attention. Look at verse 10. Because I am with you, and no one will attack you to harm you, for I have many in this city who are my people. God strengthens his servant through this vision, this divine revelation. He addresses the emotion. He commands this action, go on speaking. And he says, Paul, remember this. I'm with you. I'll never leave you. In fact, I have many people here to help you. What are we to take from this? Well, it works the same for us. You say, but I don't get a vision. I mean, when I'm discouraged and I need strengthened, oh, I would love for God to show up and give me a vision like this. I would love to have that kind of revelation. Well, beloved, God has given you all the revelation you need in your lap in the Word of God. And when you read that Word of God, it tells you the very same thing. Be not afraid. Don't be dismayed. I am with you wherever you go. I have something for you to do. My protection is with you. Nothing can happen to you outside of my control. We have the same kind of encouragement. The fact is, do we avail ourselves of it? The ways that God strengthens his servant and strengthens his people in discouraging times is through the word of God. 
Now, have you ever really known that in your life? I will never forget the time that I was traveling back from a Christian camp in the north woods of Wisconsin, and I was on an airplane, and I was in Minneapolis Airport waiting for a connection. And the reason I was going back is because I'd received a phone call. I was, I was about 20 years old, my sophomore year of college. I received a phone call that my, my dad was dying of cancer, and I needed to come home right away. And so I'm trying to make my way home as quickly as possible. I had a, a, a lengthy layover because it was a last-minute flight in Minneapolis. And I was sitting there not just wondering what was going to happen next in my life. And all I remember is opening the Bible sitting in a little quiet place by myself and reading and reading and reading and reading. And the Lord gave me something in those words that I can't explain. It wasn't an audible voice. It wasn't like he, he said something to me. But those words strengthened me. One of those words was what I still remember from the Psalms, that God said, I am a father to the fatherless. And I latched on that. And that was God's word to me. To strengthen someone that needed strength in time of despair. And God does that. Don't you know that? That when you're discouraged and you open your Bible and God speaks to you, he strengthens you. God encourages His saints. He encourages His weak servants through Christian fellowship that we all need, through divine revelation that He has given and preserved for us in His wisdom. And sometimes God strengthens us through unexpected change in circumstances. I promise you I'll be quick. What was Paul expecting? Well, we know by God's answer to him in verse 10, God says, no one will attack you or harm you. Remember, that's what he's thinking. I know how this plays out. I've been in this situation before. What's the persecution going to be like this time? And God says, no one's going to hurt you. In fact, look how it plays out. Verse 12, when Gallio was proconsul of Achaia, the Jews made a united attack on Paul. This is now after he's been in Corinth for some time. They attack him before the tribunal, saying, this man is persuading people to worship God contrary to the law. What law? Well, the Romans had a law, and under the law of Rome, Judaism, the Jewish religion, was an official religion that people could practice under Roman law. And here these Jews are taking Paul before the Roman governor, the Roman proconsul, and they're saying, this guy's starting a new religion. This isn't an official religion. It's something new, and you need to take care of it. Look at verse 14. And Paul was about to open his mouth. Paul was about to justify himself when the proconsul Gallio said to the Jews, if it were a matter of wrongdoing or vicious crime, O Jews, I would have reasoned to accept your complaint. But since it's a matter of questions about words and names and your own law, see to it yourselves. I refuse to judge these things. There's a change, right? Paul's expecting to have to justify himself and, and talk about this. And what happens? The Roman guy stands up and does it for him. As far as we know, he's not a believer. 
But he takes it upon himself and he says, no, you Jews are actually wrong. And look at what happens. Verse 16, he drove them from the tribunal and they all seized Sosthenes, this ruler of the synagogue, we, we suppose after Crispus in verse 8, who was converted. And what did they do to him? They beat him in front of the tribunal. Now, we never rejoice over a beating, right? But don't you think Paul's sitting there and thinking, huh, that's usually me. I mean, listen, buddy, I've been there. I feel your pain. And this amazing switch, unexpected change in circumstances. Don't you think Paul went away from that and he said, oh, Lord, indeed, you have much people in this city that I never anticipated would, would defend me in this way. I would have never dreamed this is how this worked out, given the track record. Thank you, Lord. God doesn't always change our circumstances like that, but he often does. And we should recognize that as his good grace. Point is, God works to encourage his discouraged saints. He works to strengthen his discouraged servants. How does he do this? Through Christian fellowship, through divine revelation, and oftentimes through unexpected change. Are you discouraged? You need strength. Don't go it alone. You need to seek out Christian fellowship. Don't look for answers in the wrong places. You need to go to God and His Word and His divine revelation and let Him minister to you. And you need to trust God with your circumstances. That the Lord is in control of those and He can unexpectedly change them in ways you've never imagined. But either way, you'll be content to accept them as from His hand. And this is how God strengthens His servants. Well, let's close tonight by singing <clears> hymn. <throat>